So this time, in the opening poll, I want to reserve number nine. So you can change your answer anytime you want. But I want to reserve number nine for all students who tried to go to the Chomsky talk and couldn't get in. Was anybody in that? Yeah. Yeah, see? How annoying. I was in line at three, and by the time I got in the door, the room was almost full. When I joined the line at three, it was exponentially growing. Like, you know, the people behind me, 10 seconds later, there's a line as big as the one in front of me behind me already. Like, yikes. So that hour between when the doors opened and when the talk started was death for people who wanted to hear Chomsky. Did anybody, I know at least one person got in. Did you, yeah? Yay! Was it, like, did you just say, oh, Chomsky? I would say You know, I was expecting Chomsky to be very smart, but he has this reputation for being pretty aggressive in the way he makes arguments. And his, if I think about it, his arguments in some cases were pretty aggressive, but I didn't expect him to, to appear to be cuddly. And I thought, he, he seemed cuddly, didn't he? Like, he could imagine going up to him and going, oh, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I bet, I bet he tried to Tonight's going to be a whole other story. So he's giving a talk at Centennial Hall. Talk is at 7, doors open at 6. This is not to do with language. You can't, you know, so in my official capacity as teacher of a course on language, I have no recommendation about whether you go or not. In my capacity as a member of this College of Social and Behavioral Sciences, I want you to go because SBS paid a lot of money to, you know, they put in a lot of work to get Chomsky here, and we want lots of people. Judging by what happened last time, get there early because lots of, they, they turned away hundreds from a language talk. Like, we were all going, I wonder if the room will fill. What are we going to do if there's empty seats at Chomsky? We're going to look so bad. Well, that's not what happened, huh? The talk is, was uh, recorded by Arizona Public Media. And the film is going to be made available in various venues. And I'll let you guys know when it's available in case you have an interest in seeing it. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take them to do all the process. They'll have to cut out the middle part, remember when the mic... The mic died in the middle of Chomsky saying important things. How dare it? I don't know, how dare it? That machine did not know who was talking into it. I don't, it didn't seem to be batteries, it seemed to be something else. And then, bless their hearts, the technical guys Took them a long time to get a working mic again. During which time, everybody here's 1,400 people sitting in the room going, ah, "I wonder what Chomsky was going to say next." And Chomsky's talking to the sign language interpreter, and he did the. Did you notice he did the this? Did the sign language interpreter. Do you guys know what this means in ASL? Yeah. It's applause. I thought that was adorable. He said, 
and language interpreter. Anyway, you know what's coming up. You have a, you have a homework assignment. And it's doing the Dropbox before start of section. And remember that you're going and finding an article and I'll sort of review that. Um, quiz four, remember, is going to be open through Monday morning. So I want you to you know, fit that in where you can. It will close at 8 a.m. on Monday. So try to get done this weekend. And then you have a week of nothing new. And then you have Field Notebook 2. And I should say to you guys, this week, you should probably not treat that like a week of nothing. Because Field Notebook 2 is pretty technical. And so it might take you a while. Um, and so we wanted you to have some more lead time on this one. So hopefully you will have started it and you can come to class next Friday with questions and things that you don't know what to do. Because sometimes you don't know what you don't know until you actually try. Right? You read the instructions and think, oh, I can do that. And then you try to do it and you realize, wait, I don't know what it means. So, um, that's a dog who's eating a chair. Important stuff about homework, too. Here's what I really, really want you to get out of the process of doing homework two. I want to be sure you find the correct type of article. And I want you to be sure you find that because if you do, it's the article you use for field notebook two. So then you're not scrambling at the last minute trying to find an article two weeks from now. And if you find the right type of article, that article is going to give you an example of the real life kind of thing that your field notebook two is most similar to. So it will give you an idea of how real scholars like present the kind of information that I'm asking you to present in your own field notebook two. So it should be a model in terms of how it presents the information, but it's not going to tell you, it's not going to give you the inventories for your language. You're still making that up. But it just shows you how this could be done for some actual language. And then, I want you to make sure you know once you've found that article how to store it so you can access it again. Because when you submit Field Notebook 2, we're asking you to submit also the article. So we want you to keep it. And remember, I showed you a little button that said download as PDF on the Cambridge website where the International, the Journal of the International Phonetic Association was. That's, that's the key thing, save as PDF. So do your best to make sure you get that file and keep it. Or if you're going to the library you know, on foot, Xerox or scan and have it, okay? We, this will be the third try, uh, third at least opportunity for you guys to practice scanning to PDF. And I told you we were going to discuss at our weekly team meeting whether it might be worthwhile to change for Field Notebook 2 and beyond to, to tighten up the restrictions on file type and say they have to be PDF. And we agreed that that would be the best thing to do.
So I'm going to post revised assignment description sheets for field notebooks two, three, four, and the field report. And instead of saying that acceptable formats are .doc, .docx, .rtf, .html, etc., we're going to say acceptable format is PDF. And then we're going to we're developing a block of helpful text so that you can figure out how to save something to PDF if you haven't figured it out yet or if it's not obvious. So we know some of you, it's harder than others. It depends on the operating system you have and the version of the word processor. There's a million variables. We're going to give you as many resources as we can put together to help you find that. And if those resources don't work for you, the next best thing is the 24-7 help desk. They, you can go there with your laptop and they can sit you down and walk you through the process. So, please, PDF homework juice. Yes, sir. Uh, the 24-7 help desk, I think, is located in the CCIT building on Speedway and Mount, I, no? Zach knows where it is. Martin Luther King building, which is, which is this way from there. Oh, it's in the, the syllabus, but I'll pull out the little spiel so, so you can easily find it. I want you to be practicing careful monitoring skills of the D2L Dropbox. You've now, this will be your third assignment that you submit to the Dropbox and you know how the interface tries to fake you out. You have to load the document and then there's a second button that says submit. You have to push that and then you have to make sure that the submit goes through and does not hang. And it can hang. It can hang if your connection drops out during the time that the file upload is happening. So what you're waiting for is an email from the D2L site that says, dear student, D2L has successfully processed your submission. And do not rest until you have the email. If you have the email and the file gets lost, you use that email to say, aha, but I uploaded it on time. And we see that email from you and we say, aha, you did. We shall treat this as an on-time submission. Okay? So that's important. And it's better to mess these things up on homework than it is to mess them up on a field notebook. So we want you to have lots of practice. These are mechanical things. Great, but they can really mess you up. All right. One of Mar Oh, I wrote Marika's Marika's Marika? Did I transcribe it wrong? Dogs is the white one. See, I've got that upside down W. I haven't put that on any of the charts that you guys have access to. So you should look at the upside down W and go, oh my word, what is Dr. Fountain doing? I don't know that symbol. Um, the upside down W stands in the IPA for a WA that is voiceless instead of voiced. So the WA sounds a glide, like in the word which, the one that's the lady with the pointy nose and that hat who casts spells, she's a witch, right? That's woo. Some of you 
might have a slightly different pronunciation for the word that's spelled W-H-I-C-H. Like, which one do you want? Which? If you speak British English, you will definitely have this sound, the like in which. If you're an old person, you're likely to have that sound even if you're an American English speaker. If you're a young American English speaker, you are unlikely to have that sound. It's a sound that for most of you guys has gone away and all the things that we have as you have as what. And so for you, the lady in the pointed hat and the word W-H-I-C-H will sound exactly alike. Perfectly reasonable pronunciation. But I include this guy because um, he's an example of change in progress in the pronunciation of English. So, if we're going to describe a speech sound, we need to first identify its airstream mechanism. And then, what's the second thing? No? It's the lotled state. Is it voiced or voiceless? And then, where it's pronounced is its where it's pronounced is its place of articulation, and how much airflow is its manner of articulation. So you could put those in either order. That's fine. But those are the four properties we've used. Now, let me close this starting poll and open up a new poll. I'm going to ask you to tell me. Oh, there were a fair number of nines. Hmm. OK. If you are a vowel, you are pulmonic egressive. <clears throat> are you prototypically, that is, in the sort of neutral case, going to be pronounced with oral or nasal airflow? If you think a vowel is typically oral, please click 1. If you think it's typically nasal, please click 2. And please do so in the next 3, 2, one. <coughs> Correct. Ah. Right. Most vowels are oral. If you speak French, you can make nasal vowels too, right? Now, if you're a vowel, are you prototypically one voice? Vibration in the vocal fold, or two, voiceless, no vibration. Please pick one or two. And uh, in the next three, two, these are always so suspenseful. One, I know, I need a drum roll. Let's see. All right, who voted three? <laughs> That's not correct. That's correct, yes. So some languages allow voiceless vowels, whispered vowels, but that's very rare. Mostly, if you're a vowel, you're voiced. What is your manner of articulation if you are a vowel? Vowel, correct. That is a name for a manner of articulation. And I will have, I will turn my back on you guys so you can appreciate my shirt today. 
which is a bowel shirt. And it, it's, a, it's a geeky joke, right? But the pronunciation of vowels in English systematically changed between Middle English and Modern English in this weird way that is depicted on the shirt in fiendishly correct phonetic detail. But I won't make you know that. At least you recognize the trapezoid and the vowel space. Because that's where we identify the place of articulation for vowels. And when we say, when we try to identify a vowel's place of articulation, what part of the tongue gives us the thing to point to in the vowel space? It's, it's where the skittle balances, which I would call the apex. You could say the apex. Probably not the tongue tip, right? Because the tip for most vowels is relaxed and it might not be near the Okay, excellent. Ah. And we said, don't be frightened if you see a vowel chart where they call, call things, instead of calling them high versus low, they call them close, which means that your tongue is close to the roof of your mouth, which is the same thing as high versus open, which means that your mouth is open, which means that your tongue is low. You can use either terms. And then front, central, back refers to this dimension. And there we are, back at the vowel space. Um, we're going to build the 11 vowels out of this guy. So far, we've really only talked about these vowels. So let's just make them and circumnavigate our vowel space again so we remind ourselves. We'll start with E, E, A, I forgot to add the first time. Right? <laughs> but if you got it, you're good. So those are the edges, right? This is the periphery of your vowel space. And we talked about these two, just briefly, we talked about these two different symbols for the ah type vowels. And technically, they, they refer to different versions of ah. This one is the ah that you do at the dentist. This is the awe ah that most of you probably have in a word like pot. Um, but for our, our purposes, you can use either version of A and it's fine. You know, you need something that's low and sort of backish. So, in English, for the low vowels, we only really care about two tongue positions. You can be a front one, in which case you're ah, or a back one, in which case you're some kind of awe. That's reasonable. Um, this vowel is a really weird vowel of English sociolinguistically. It's a, like a, there are all these words where there's a prestige pronunciation in which you say this vowel as though it were this vowel. Like where I grew up, the, the sister of my mother is my aunt. She's my aunt. Yeah. The prestige pronunciation is aunt. Right. And, and you'll find people changing ads in English words to ahs sometimes when they want to sound fancier when they're not sure. So I grew up in a tiny little town called Wenatchee, Wenatchee, Washington, and that's a good ah. 
When people aren't sure about it, they call it Wenatchee. That as getting stigma for some reason. I don't know why. It's interesting. Okay. So you can use either of these symbols for an aw type sound. And then what's this guy? Oh. If when you see this guy, if you think, now how would I explain that to someone else? And you go, oh, ah, you're saying it right. The hesitation vowel for most things. This little guy also sounds like ah. Uh. Technically, it's a smidge different, but in terms of its acoustics, it's so so similar that I um, can't, in good conscience, sorry, can't in good conscience care which of those you use for the vowel ah. Uh. You can use either one. So. That's what this says, but that's hidden. Okay? Okay. So we have places where you can use, you can pick the symbol you like and use it. Pick the one that's easiest to type. In this case, uh, it's going to be that one. In this case, those are both a little bit hard to type, but pick the one you like. Um, uh, uh, yes, Chris. Uh, I also noticed that Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this, so what Chris just said is that this this guy gets spelled a whole lot of different ways in English orthography, and he's so right about that. It's one of our vowels that we use, but we don't have a letter for it, so we have to invent weird. And and sometimes there's multiple correct spellings of a thing. Particularly if it's a foreign word that doesn't yet have a standard English spelling. Okay. These vowels, well, minus a, e u a o a a. I shall call those peripheral vowels. Peripheral vowels because they're pushed all the way at the edges of the vowel space. Now, most languages don't particularly care whether the vowel is peripheral or not, but English happens to have a whole bunch of vowels. And so English cares about this distinction um, between peripheral and not peripheral. So if I say that that's a centralized vowel, does that make sense to you based on the chart? Because it's right in the middle that's centralized. And peripheral, peripheral means it's on the edges. Good. So let's look at some non-peripheral vowels of English that aren't on the chart yet. And we'll start at high. And let's, uh, let's start with a good E sound. And what I want you to do is say your E and then just kind of concentrate on relaxing your tongue a little bit so it's a little bit more towards the center. Do you hear that? That's how you write the vowel it. So it's a small cap I. <laughs> I know what a pain. It's not a regular capital I. Don't spell it with regular capital I. That will mean something different. It's a small cap. 
And that's the vowel that we have in a word like pin or pit or tit. I advanced to that one. So, A, A, now relax your tongue a little bit towards the center. A, eh, eh. You get to E. Eh. That's spelled with a thing that looks a little bit like a three. It's not a three, but it looks a little bit like a three. That's like in bed or bet. Start at ooh, and now when you relax toward the center, your tongue's going to come a little bit forward, right? Instead, ooh, oh, oh, like in book, right? Ah, uh, this one. This is our twucky twuck vowel. Twucky twuck. Exaggeration. This vowel, so let's start with the O. <coughs> Keep everything in position for O, but relax your tongue back a little bit. O, 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 O. My dad grew up in Brooklyn, and my dad has that vowel all over the place, and words like dog, right? <laughs> I grew up in the Western United States. This vowel, for me, doesn't occur in those kinds of words. But I do have it in a word like the word for this number. Four. Oh. I think we all still keep it in certain places. So let me, I think I have a question for you about this. Ah. Oh, I'll, it'll come later. So these guys that we've just now introduced are centralized a little bit, right? So you can call them centralized, or you can call them lax, as in relaxed. And the ones that are peripheral, you can call those peripheral, or else you can call them tense, the opposite of relaxed. Either term works. Linguists tend to refer to this as the tense-lax distinction in English. Um, because English, dudes, it matters whether you say an A or an E. Because if you say an A, you're talking about bait, which you might try to catch a fish with. But if you say it bet, you're talking about a wager. And those are different things, right? People who learn English as a second language have a very hard time with that distinction. It's actually teensy, teensy, tiny articulatorily and also acoustically. It's hard to hear and it's hard to produce. Same thing with that distinction. E versus it. If you didn't hear that when you were a little kid, it can be really hard to hear. And replacing these I sounds with E is a stereotypical property of varieties of American English that you might think of as Chicano English. It's also a stereotypical property of a Spanish accent. Right. So for an American English native speaker, if you say it peat, you've just named a man. But if you say it pit, it's a hole in the ground. But if you speak Spanish, they're both peat. Right. And that's very reasonable, acoustically and articulatorily, because those guys are real close. 
So, to describe place of articulation for vowels, we now know we can use words like high, mid, low, front, central, back, open, closed, tense, lax, or else peripheral, centralized. Ah, here we go. Now I want to do some tests. So most of the dialectal variation in American English shows up in our vowels. And so I'd like you to think about the, these two words. They're different words. One of them is a pokey thing. You might affix to a diaper. And the other one is a writing implement. If those two words, when you say them to yourself in your head, sound like the same word, I want you to click one. Right? Yeah. And if they sound to you like different words, I want you to click two. So the words are the one spelled P-I-N and the one spelled P-E-N. Those are the two words. So please think about it. And in the next three, two, one. Oh. oh, good. All right, so I'm not going to call either of these right or wrong. Because neither of those is a right or a wrong answer. But for the 10% of you who said they sound the same, that phenomenon is called the pin-pen merger. And it's a hallmark of certain varieties centered in Texas. So if you're a Texan English speaker, or your parents were, or you spent a lot of time in Texas, you might have pin and pin for those two things. It's called a merger because it's two vowels in one dialect and they squish together so they're pronounced the same in the other one. Now, I might have written that down, I don't know. Okay, yes. Various regional dialects originating in Texas. So for American English speakers, you don't have to get your dialect from where you actually live. We're such a mobile community. A lot of us have lived in multiple places and we have parents from multiple locations. We can acquire these things in lots of different ways. But at least prototypically, this one puts you in Texas somewhere, or your parents or something. Now, how about these guys? So there's a name spelled D-O-N, and it's a men's name. And then there's a name spelled D-A-W-N, and it's a woman's name. If those two, when you say them, sound alike, uh, you're going to press two this time. If they sound different, you're going to press one. So when you hear that in your own speech, if you can tell whether we're talking about a boy or a girl, you're going to press one. Otherwise, press two in the next three, two, one. Ah. Okay, good. So, again, neither of these is right or wrong. The different dialects, the, those vowels sound different, are centered in the northeastern U.S. And most of the rest of American English speakers will have them sound the same, and in particular, 
we get we get the, the awe there. So both of them sound like dawn. So for you guys who have the distinction, for us guys, both of them sound like the man's name. And we don't say the woman's name, dawn, differently than the, than the man's. Right. Excellent. So good phonetician who knows something about language variability in the US can pinpoint your geographic dialectal influences by listening to your vowels. Key and wireless. Um, there's another thing we have to think about when we talk about place of articulation for vowels. This will be the last element. And it has to do with what you're doing with your lips when you make the vowel. So vowels can be produced with round circle lips, like ooh and o, or else they can be produced with non-round circle lips like e and a and ah and eh, uh, no round circle. So the ones that are produced with lip rounding are called round, and the ones that are produced without it are called unround. And in lots of languages, the back vowels tend to be round, but the front vowels tend to be not round. There's good articulatory reason for that. When you, when you round your lips, you make your mouth longer. And that changes the form and frequencies it produces, and it emphasizes the difference between front and back acoustically. So it's a nice, like, when you move your tongue back and you make your lips long, you're making those back vowels seem as back as they can possibly seem. In languages like German that have front round vowels, like remember we practiced the one E that's spelled with letter Y and it lives right here in the chart, except it's round. They're using rounding in a way that doesn't emphasize the front back <laughs> distinction. So the vowel distinctions in German can be a little harder to hear even than the ones in English. Um, but really, it's the Germanic languages that have the most crazy vowel systems on earth. Probably the craziest vowel system in, in the world is Swedish. Oh, I don't know if we, I'm collecting information on you guys. If we have any native speakers of Swedish, I totally want to get you up here to say vowels. Because I can't make all the distinctions that they make. It's beautiful. All right. Ah. Everybody say the word, dude, but say it like you're a surfer. Dude. Yes, you're getting almost to the water, right? That is a characteristic of coastal California. The ooh gets pushed towards the front, almost as if it should be spelled with letter Y. And we can all do it, and we're like, dude but it hasn't spread very far out of California yet. Okay. All right. We have 11 vowels. We can describe each according to its place of articulation, and we have to use, we have to tell how high or low it is, we have to tell how front or back it is, we have to say whether it's peripheral, tense, or centralized, lax, and we have to say whether it's round or not. We've got all these pieces, we can uniquely identify any vowel. And American English has at least 11 of them. 
that are distinctive, and that makes the American English vowel inventory very complex compared to most human languages. Our consonant inventory in American English is pretty mundane, really, when you look cross-linguistically, but the vowels are, that's where the action is in the inventories. And you notice that there's a whole bunch of these guys that you have to learn crazy symbols for, because we don't have letters in English to spell those vowels. All right. You might call this inventory crowded. I would. I would say it is crowded. Okay, so I'm now going to give you a set of words that I hope will help you remember the symbols. But I also want this set of words to introduce to you the notion of the minimal pair. I'm actually going to give you a minimal decuplet or something, but minimal pair. Let's start with these guys. This is a minimal pair of words in English. We have the word bead and the word bid. Now, what do I mean those are minimal pairs? If you're a minimal pair of words, you are a pair of words. How many is that? Two. Two. Correct. What does it mean to be minimal? <laughs> Two things. You have different meanings in the language. So everybody agrees that a bead is something you put on a string, but a bid is something you do at a poker game. Different words. So they have to mean different things. And they differ in exactly one segment, exactly one phone. So this one has E, and this one has I. And these, these minimal pairs of words are really important to linguists. We look for them in every language we study. Because once you've found a minimal pair of words in a language, you know that the phonetic difference, there's only one phonetic difference between those two words, you know that that phonetic difference is phonemic for the language. That is, the phonetic difference is meaningful in that language because it can be used to discriminate the meanings of words. So if somebody said to me, any phone did I do not believe that English has both E and if, I think those are just two pronunciations of the same sound. I can say to them, ha ha, I can prove you wrong. Bead, bid, done. <laughs> right? It's the gold standard for proving that a phonetic difference is meaningful. If I were to produce words like that in Spanish, you could, you could produce them in Spanish. They probably, there probably isn't this word in Spanish, bead, is there? Bead? It's not, it's a possible word in Spanish, but it's not a real word. If you said it bid, the, the speaker might be able to hear that it was a little different sounding, but it wouldn't be meaningfully different. Yes, Wayne. I thought the, the, the phonetic spellings had to be the same though for them to be minimal pairs. I think that's the way it was explained in the section on the Okay, so, the, so they have to be mostly the same. There crucially has to be one phonetic difference. All right? So if it came out some other way in the section, it was misspoken. Or maybe misunderstood. Yes. It can be a vowel or a consonant that differs. What we're going to ask you to do on field notebook two is come up with some minimal pairs for 
eight consonants in your inventory that are the same as each other, except they differ by voice. So if you have any pairs that are, you know, you've got the alveolar plosive, tuh, voiceless, and also the alveolar plosive, duh, voiced, I want a minimal pair where one word has a tuh, the other one has a duh. They mean different things in your language. Okay. In the consonants, or in the vowels, we'll ask you for minimal pairs that center around something different. For now, I just want you to get this concept minimal pair. And I'm going to add to these. So now we have a minimal triplet. So I have be, bid, bade, like the past tense of what the dog did at the moon. There's the minimal quintuplet bed, a thing you sleep in. So do you see why, why I'm counting these things as minimal? It's one set of words that differ from each other just minimally, Richard. So you could turn in two minimal pairs in that set? You could. You could turn in multiple minimal pairs in that set. There's no, there's no set of minimal, uh, what would 11 Zs be, dodecaplets? There's no, we can't do this all the way through the English vowel inventory, but we can come close. So, bad, to not be good, bud, like a thing that a rose was before it bloomed, booed, like you were mad at something someone said, and so you booed them. There is no English word good. Although I say the word B-U-D-D-H-A, you know if you're talking about that religion of the Far East, you're supposed to say Buddha, right? But I learned it Buddha. So I'm tempted to put up Buddha there and call it a near minimal. Almost, not quite exactly minimal. But no, there is no word in English wood, so I had to, I had to Something that wasn't exactly a minimal pair. And I, I gave you book. Bode, like that does not bode well. Or it could be the past tense of what you do in Bode. Bode, if you have the aw, you should have it in that computery word, bod. Well, when we had bodems, we cared about how many bods. And then you can talk about someone's bod, right, which is different. So we can come pretty close to proving the American English vowel inventory using one set of minimal, I guess that's minimal decuplets, a minimal decuplet. You are only going to need minimal pairs for certain phonetic properties that you propose in your field level two. We've got some time to work on that, but I want you to be really confident about what it means, minimal pair. Okay? Okay. Ah. Now, there are, oop. Hang on. No, 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 go away. There we go. There are some vowels in some languages that are, you remember what affricates are? Affricates are things that they can have two different places of articulation even though they're the same sound, right? You start like a plosive, you end like a fricative. 
but you're one cell. Well, in the vowel world, you have things like that too. You have vowels that move during their articulation from one place to another. And those are called diphthongs. Diphthongs. So a diphthong is one vowel that starts at one place and ends at another. I'm going to ask you to uh, make the diphthong. I'm going to just show you the starting and ending place. So let's start somewhere in an O or an O, either one, and end up in an E or an I type thing. O, oi, 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 like a boy. There are many possible acceptable ways to spell that diphthong in phonetic transcription. And you can use any of these. When you have a diphthong, generally it has sort of a starting position on the grid. But it can, the starting position can be a little variable. So some speakers might have an oi that starts with a real o and then moves all the way to a real e, a real tense e. Others might have an awe that goes to an if, and they, they sound so alike that you can't tell them. So there's multiple possible spellings. And one possible spelling of any of the diphthongs of English involves the use of a glide, a glide instead of a second vowel position, which is weird. Um, but if you just remember, remember how the ya glide was E in consonant clothes. Remember when we looked at that? I tried to convince you anyway that ya and e were the same, basically. Any diphthong that ends high in front, you can choose to use the high front glide, the palatal glide, to indicate the ending position of that guy. Um, let's do another one. So high front equals palatal. Now let's start somewhere in awe land and end somewhere in high front land. I. Like in by. So here's a minimal pair, boy and by. They mean different things and they prove that oi and I are different diphthongs of English. I you can spell any darn way, well, not any darn way you want. The first character has to be something low and backish, and the second character has to be something high and frontish. It could be the young line. Multiple ways to write the thing. They're all acoustically the same as each other. They just re represent different planes about exactly where your tongue is. Now there's one more. Oh, ow, ow, or. Bow. Minimal triplet. Boy, by, bow. Now see how this one doesn't end in high front land. It ends in high back land. And the, the glide that is corresponds to oo is the labiovelar glide, wa. So you can use the letter w to represent that ending position if you want. Or you can use the letter oo. Or you can use the letter o. So the good news is multiple right ways to say these things, to write these sounds in IPA. You can also get them wrong, but at least there's multiple ways to get them right. Those are the only phonemic diphthongs of English. 
And you'll notice that they all can be characterized as ending either in ya or wa. So some phonologists of English say the English rule for making diphthongs, the English rule for making, making diphthongs says you have to combine a vowel with a glide. Other languages can allow diphthongs that go between any two vowels in the inventory, any two vowel positions in the inventory. So you might have a language that allows free combination of vowels into diphthongs. That's fine. English doesn't do that. English has this weird restriction on our diphthongs. Um, but your language might do something fun. So, and crucially, if you say something's a diphthong, that means it's got two places of articulation. That means you're going to spell it with two letters squished together. All right. Nathaniel's. Nathaniel's. Basenji. Max. I think you know how to make C's and D's. And I think. Your language will have them, consonants and vowels, C's and D's. So I think you can now think a little bit more fully about how you're going to array these things into words. And when we come back next time, Monday, we'll talk about some principles by which you can do that. Oh, sorry. Sorry, but...